It's said of the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon that on a Saturday evening he may have as many as 20 out sermon outlines. And his problem was which one to preach on Sunday. Few of us have that particular problem. But now that I'm not preaching uh, very regularly, I do have several starting points on my desk waiting for development and opportunity. Further to that, I have known for some time that I was due to be here this evening, and that gives time to prepare. But it also gives time for others to preach on the passage or on the theme that I've been developing. At first I thought with Easter well behind us, I was safe in preparing to speak on a central, foundational, essential truth, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then Pastor Tim preached two powerful sermons on the resurrection as he concluded his studies in Luke's Gospel. What should I do? Well, knowing how forgetful we can be, and uh, approaching the matter from a completely uh, different angle, I felt that I should continue. So in a moment, we will come to Matthew chapter 20 and verses 17 to 19. Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The New International Version heads this paragraph, Jesus again predicts his death. And that's all. Jesus again predicts his death. But the same paragraph in the New King James is entitled, Jesus a third time predicts his death and resurrection. You may recall that Peter, writing in his second letter, had certain things to say. I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Peter says, I'm going to remind you of what you know, I'm going to refresh your memory and I'm going to make provision so that after I am dead you will remember these things. Three times. Even more amazing, the Lord Jesus, while he was here on earth, while after he had chosen 12 disciples, 
predicted his death and resurrection, not once, not twice, but three times, as recorded for us in Matthew 16, 17, and 20. I wonder, does that surprise you? Does it intrigue you? Does it challenge you? As you get older and your memory is not so good, does it comfort you? I have been drawn to the record of Jesus and the disciples coming into the region of Caesarea Philippi for as long as I can remember. I further noted the reaction of the disciples when Jesus again predicted his death and resurrection as recorded in chapter 17. But in my reading through the Bible again this year, it was the five statements in the third prediction prediction that were impressed upon my mind. Five things about the Son of Man. He will be betrayed. He will be condemned. He will be delivered. He will be mocked, scourged, and crucified. And then almost as a postscript, he will rise again. This third prediction is the fullest, but all three very clearly reveal the Lord Jesus' forthcoming violent death and his subsequent resurrection. Yet in spite of the brevity and clarity and repetition of the prediction, the disciples seem not to have understood it or to accept it, especially about the resurrection. What do you think of that? How do you explain the disciples' response? How do you excuse it? How would you react if you had given simple and clear and repeated instructions to those who know you and have been with you only to find that they didn't seem to understand or to accept what you were saying? Well, let's consider these predictions and see if they help us to understand why the disciples were in the words of the risen Lord on the road to Emmaus that first Easter evening, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And while we're thinking about that, perhaps we should ask ourselves, is it not true of us, 2,000 years later, that all too often we are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Even after the death, resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the completion of God's word, his revelation to us. I'm always stirred by the background to the first prediction in Matthew chapter 16. The Lord Jesus did not simply say, 
men or in the modern language guys. I'm going to tell you who I really am. I'm going to talk to you about my deity. He didn't do that. He asked some questions. Making them think. Oh, that we might know how to think. Those of you who uh, saw Gerald Tanner's prayer letter talked about preaching the gospel in Uganda against a number of obstacles, poverty and ignorance and so on, and an education that didn't teach people to think. At the Queen Mary Grammar School speech day just over a week ago, the headmaster no longer just gives a report of the year's events, he makes a speech about policy and the way that we should go. And his contention was that the school is no exam factory. They are not there simply to get people passing exams. They have got a much wider view. Many years ago, so it doesn't affect this church at all, many years ago, I realized that one of the elders' wife was a bit disaffected. So I went to see her and said, what's the matter? Nothing. So I said, come on, what, what, what's the problem? It's the church notices. So I said, well, what's the problem? She said, well, when the notices are given out, we're not told what to do. You see, there'd been a legalism that said, do this, don't do that. And we weren't doing that. And she said, I don't know anymore what I must do and what I mustn't do. But I know what you're doing. You're trying to make us think scripturally. Do you know, I believe that's the finest compliment I've had in 50 years ministry. You're trying to make us think scripturally. And the Lord Jesus asked questions to get the disciples thinking. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you know, it's a very familiar passage. You know the answers that were given. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets and so on. But, but who do you think that I am? Oh, that was different, except for the fact that Peter blurted out, as you know, you are the son of the, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Good old Peter. But notice what Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. What Peter said wasn't the result of a PhD. It wasn't the result of going to Bible college. It wasn't the result of being brought up in a Christian home and taught Bible stories from the cradle. It wasn't the result of his own efforts and endeavors, and that ought to comfort and encourage all of us. He made this statement because he was helped by God. 
And if we are to ever know and understand in the deep places of our being who Jesus Christ is and what he has really done, we need God's help. Because it is only God who can reveal to us God. That it was not Peter's own wisdom is evident. Because in a few moments left to his own wisdom is in trouble. And as you know, he was rebuked by the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 21, we're told from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I wonder what you would have said. Well, Peter again is quick to open his mouth. And he said, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Uh, before we say Peter put his foot in it, try and put yourself in his position for a moment. What he has just heard was impossible, ridiculous. Elders, scribes, chief priests might disagree with Jesus, but kill him? Never. But Peter was out of order. What do you think of that? Have you never known things that seemed to be impossible come to pass in the providence and purpose of God? I sometimes wonder how often Peter thought about Caesarea Philippi. How often he thought about his declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And about the Lord's response. That's been revealed by my Father in heaven. And about Peter, protest and rebuke. I don't know. But I tell you this, I have thought of it often over the years. I've often gone in thought to Caesarea Philippi to try and learn from the incident and to remember that there is all the difference in the world between me doing something for God to the best of my ability, to the greatest of my endeavor, and God taking hold of me and using me. Have you recognized that difference? Do you desire it? Do you want to do things for God? Or do you want God to do things for you and through you? Peter heard what the Lord Jesus said but he didn't grasp and understand it especially the last bit oh that God would help us to read and to hear and to understand and receive his word into our hearts and minds to receive his revelation of himself 
and his purposes, especially through his son, the Lord Jesus. Why did Peter and the disciples not understand and remember what Jesus said at Caesarea? Was it because it was utterly impossible? Matthew 17, the second prediction, follows the glorious transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ on the mountain in the presence of Peter, James and John and the events at the foot of the mountain. The disciples had been unable to heal a boy brought to them. And after Jesus had rebuked a demon and healed the boy, the disciples wanted to know why they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus said it was because of their unbelief. How much unbelief is there in our hearts? And he said this sort only come forth by prayer and some translations have and fasting. What is evident, special prayer was needed. Urgent prayer. Do you recognize that there are degrees of prayer? Did you notice in Ezekiel chapter 8, the closing words of Ezekiel chapter 8? The Lord says, I will not hear them. Even if they shout in my ear, I will not hear them. Is your view of God one rather like a Father Christmas? That you put your money in and you get your gift out? There are circumstances. A man once said to me, will you please tell me what the scripture has to say about God not answering prayer? It was a very sobering study. If we turn our backs upon him, if we put an idol before him, if we don't give the Lord Jesus Christ the place that is rightfully his. The Father won't hear us. The disciples were surely at the foot of the mountain aware of their limitation. And then while they were in Galilee, the Lord Jesus Christ dropped a bombshell among them. Verse 22. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief, or they were exceedingly sorrowful. I've observed over the years that when people are deeply sorrowful, when they are grieving, they do not always think logically or rationally. They do not always remember what is said to them or what they say to others. And in their grief and in their deep sorrow, they are not always understood. So that some crash in and say, have a good cry, it'll do you good. Or pull yourself together or think of others. But at such times, 
They need special sympathy and empathy and understanding and care and love. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by grief and sorrow that you felt no one understood? Have you had friends and loved ones who were in such deep grief and sorrow that you found you were unable to help them, couldn't get near them? Job's friends were most helped when they were silent. They only multiplied his problems when they spoke out of their own limitations. But I love the scriptural illustration of what I'm trying to say that is to be found in our reading in Two Kings. This much-loved story of the Shunammite. The prophet had stayed with her and she had ministered to him and uh, provided for him. And in answer to that, the prophet had promised her a son. And when her son died, did you notice as we read what she did? She asked her husband to send a servant and a donkey. And the husband wanted to know if everything was all right and she said yes. Wasn't true, was it? She was so grief-stricken, she couldn't even share it with her husband. She asked the servant to go on this perilous journey without care for herself. And when Elisha saw her, he sent his servant Gehazi to meet her. Do you remember what Elisha said? Ask if your husband's all right. Are you all right? Is your son all right? And she said, everything's all right. Wasn't, was it? You remember Paul Mallard came and said that we, many of us before we leave the church doors tell lies. We're asked how we are. Oh, fine, fine. She's what she said. Everything was all right. Wasn't true. And when she came to Elisha, she was oh so overcome that all she could do was to take hold of his feet. And Gehazi tried to intervene and protect his master, just as the disciples did, centuries later with the Lord Jesus. Do you remember when the mothers brought the little children to him? The disciples tried to take them away. And Jesus said, forbid them not, let the little children come to me. Do we sometimes come between God and the ones that he's trying to minister to? Elisha said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. Oh, what guiding wisdom for any of us involved in pastoral care. But that was not all. He said, the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. No brash confidence that modern theories will suffice. Here is humility and recognition that human wisdom and modern techniques are not always sufficient to minister to others. You know what follows? First, Elisha sent Gehazi, but that wasn't enough. 
she insisted that Elisha came with her. And then we have that extraordinary and remarkable remedy. And over the years I have turned to this incident again and again. For if Elisha did not know immediately the Shunammite's need, how much more do we, by God's grace and mercy, if we are to minister to others in their need, seek the Lord, that he might tell us how we can help them. We're told the disciples were exceeding sorrowful because of what Jesus had predicted was going to happen to him. It wasn't that they had pity for Jesus. It was deep, deep sorrow over the one they loved and seemed unable to understand at this point. And so to Matthew 20 and verse 17. And notice this was not a casual conversation as they walked along. We're told specifically that as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. Their full attention was required for what Jesus was going to say. It was important. And he spoke to them about the Son of Man. Do you remember the question? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do you say he is? Five things he tells them. He's going to be betrayed. Betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. Just think about that for the moment. Who, who, who would betray this wonderful teacher, preacher and healer? Who would know where he was? Who would know how to betray him? To to the religious leaders, to those who taught the word of God, who were surely waiting for the coming Messiah. Whatever we might think of our religious leaders at times, we'd not expect them to be betrayers of God's people, let alone the Lord Jesus. And yet as we look over our history, we might have other thoughts. You know and I know that in parts of the world, those who follow the Lord Jesus are betrayed to the authorities. I can understand how the disciples just couldn't get their heads round this. I can't. And yet from history and from my own heart, I know that such things are possible. It is possible for people to betray the Lord Jesus and his followers. I want to deny it, but I know it happens. They will condemn him to death. Oh, it can't be. They could not. They didn't have the power. Only the Romans had the authority to pronounce the death sentence. And that would be by crucifixion. And God had declared, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. Try and put yourself in the place of the disciples. And ask yourself, how could any Jew hand over another Jew, a good man, to the Romans to be crucified? 
But the prediction says that the chief priests and scribes will do just that. I'm running ahead of myself. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. It's difficult to illustrate this. We receive into our crowded country political refugees seeking asylum. And in some cases, we will not force them to return to the regimes where they would be tortured and put to death. Would you deliver to extremists those who administered to you? Delivered to the Gentiles. Three words sum up the horror of the first four statements. Mocked. What do we know of this? A little perhaps, as Steve indicated in the notices, those who are dismissed because of their clear Christian witness. Some know what it is to be mocked. But this was Jesus. Scourged. What do we know about this? Soon after I came uh, to Walsall, I spoke to a lady called Eunice Walker. And she told me that when her brother joined up for the war, in the barracks he was next to a convict. And in talking to this convict, it came out that this man had had the cat and nine tails. Some of you will know what it was. It was a way of punishing criminals a certain kind. It was a, 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 a whip with several lashes. And apparently Eunice Walker's brother said to the man, How many times did you have it? Only once. Only once. Never again. He was scourged. And he was crucified. And some still are. But sometimes being crucified is trivialized. I know a young man who works in high finance in the city. And he is such a star in his field that before his contract with one company finished, another company was headhunting him. And he went to the other company expecting that they would be able to settle uh, the fact that his contract had not finished. But the company that he was leaving decided to make an example of him. And they were going to take him to court. He couldn't work for six months while the battle was going on in the background over the company that wanted him and the company that didn't want to lose him. And a, a date was set for the court case. And his parents said to him, it's all right, son, we will be there in court to support you. No, he said, don't come. They will crucify me. What did he mean? Well, he meant that when he was in the dock, he would be grilled and he would be made out to appear a villain. In the end, the case was settled 
out of court by two big financial companies. But Jesus was crucified. And after all this, what mind and heart can absorb this final prediction? He will rise again. It's not that his teaching will live on or his example will be followed. No, on the third day, he himself would rise again. The sealed, guarded tomb could not hold him. He rose again and he was seen by individuals and groups and a crowd of 500 at one time. Many infallible truths. And he's alive now and forever. Do we live a resurrection life? His sphere of ministry has moved temporally from earth to heaven, where he is our great high priest, where he is our advocate. But after his resurrection from the dead, he visited John on the island of Patmos. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Earlier this year, I was asked if I would take part in a funeral service, and then quite extraordinary in what seemed to be impossible circumstances, I would ask if I would take the funeral. It was to be in an Anglican church. It was to be in a church where... Uh, the gospel, I doubt, has been preached for a very, very long time. And the one who had died had lived in the same village all his life, 70-odd years. He'd been a sportsman, so he was known in the area for that. He had been a farmer and a trader, so he was known for many. He was a part-time Pfizer. The church was packed, absolutely packed. And I was asked to recite verses of scriptures that went in, and I know from past experiences in Anglican buildings, people shuffle and churches move, chairs move and nothing is heard. So before I quoted scriptures, I called to the congregation to hear the word of God and to be comforted by it. And then I quoted the words from John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who believes in me shall never die. And at the time of refreshment afterwards, I saw a man watching me carefully and looking at me and looking as though he's going to come and speak to me. And eventually he did and he said, you don't know me. He said, but from the moment you started, I knew it was going to be different. And we went from the service to the graveside. And again I quoted from John chapter 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And someone came to me afterwards, a Christian lady, and she said, oh, I'm so glad that you emphasized the resurrection, that you began with it. 
and that you finished with it. Do you know what Jesus said after I am the resurrection and the life? He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whoever believes in me will never die. He said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you and I believe it? Not just here, but here and in our daily lives. Do we know that Jesus is alive? Sometimes at Easter we follow the, predict- the practice of the early Christians. When the early Christians met they would say, The Lord is risen. And they would respond, he is risen indeed. Do we only believe that at Easter? Or do we believe it all the year? Do we believe it in times of joy? And do we believe it in times of sorrow? Do we have a little sympathy for the disciples' reluctance to believe all that the scriptures had said concerning the Lord Jesus. These terrible, terrible, terrible predictions ending, and on the third day, he will rise again. We're going to conclude with a hymn that we often sing at Easter, Jesus Lives And I'd like you to notice verse 5. Jesus lives to him the throne over all the world is given. May we go where he is gone. Rest and reign with him in heaven. Let's stand and sing.